great way to start our service this morning with um, from this prayer. Uh, Father, that you would uh, meet us this day, that you would indeed be exalted and glorified as our holy, uh, awesome God. And Father, we pray that you would indeed reveal yourself to us and feed us a word that would nourish our hearts and our souls, uh, that would speak to us deep within and uh, feed us. Lord, we just thank you that you are faithful to your promises, and we invite your presence to be here with us this morning, uh, to speak to us and to minister to each person here by your Spirit and your grace. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Good morning. Is everybody awake? I don't know. Some of you, it looks a little sketchy. Um, we are going through the Gospel of John. This, this morning we will be looking at John chapter 5, if you want to turn there. Um, and uh, the title of the message this morning is The Father's Business. Um, there are a lot of ways in which we are like our our fathers are like our parents. And um, some ways we may appreciate that we are like our parents. Some ways we may not appreciate. Some ways we may actually dread. Uh, do you remember ever saying, maybe some of you are younger, young enough, you, you said this recently. I know for me I said it many times when I was a kid. You know, when I, get, when I grow up, I am not going to be like my parents. Right? Any of you kids ever said that? Uh, I'm not going to be like my parents or at least not like that part of my parents. Some of you are really hoping you don't look like your parents. Um, uh, you know, that whole double chin thing, you know. I don't want that. I'm going to pray that doesn't happen to me. Um, the the monobrow, you know. You pray that that genetic trait did not get passed on to you if you're a kid. Um, big ears, you know, all those features that we just love about our parents but we really hope we don't possess, right? Um, mannerisms, personality traits. And the reality is that we are in many ways like our parents, uh, like it or not. Um, my, my dad, as I think back about my own dad, uh, I think of two distinct traits that he had that I, that I really picked up. The, the first was that my dad was kind of a goofball. Um, and uh, he was just kind of a goofy guy sometimes. Uh, the second thing was that he had a violent temper. And I inherited both of those things. Thankfully, God has, by His grace and His Spirit, really helped uh, eliminate the violent temper. Sadly, sometimes I'm just as much of a goofball, if not more so, than my dad. So, you know, we we inherit these things. Uh, It's passed on to us, and it's part of what it means to be a father and a child. Um, And to some extent, along with that, our our own interests and abilities are also passed on from our parents. Um, and some of it instinctively or intuitively. Uh, my own father, my, my real father, my biological father, was a carpenter. And he built houses. He was great at fixing things. And uh, from the earliest times I can remember, I remember seeing my dad building things. We, because he was a carpenter, we were always living in a house under construction and never finished. And so I had lots of opportunities to witness and experience carpentry firsthand. And, 
a lot of that just rubbed off. I don't remember my dad ever sitting down and saying, this is how you build stuff. But I just kind of learned it and absorbed it. So that by the time I was in high school, I was building stuff. One of my first jobs was doing construction work. Uh, when I was in high school, I, I naturally gravitated away from the math department and to the wood shop. Now, believe it or not, they do do a lot of math in the wood shop, and it made sense to me there. In the math department, it just went over my head. And so my senior year, out of four classes I had to take as a senior, or four classes I did take, three of them were in the wood shop. And while, while other people were trying to make little coat hangers, I was building like grandfather clocks and really elaborate woodwork. And my shop teacher was very impressed with me, but the reality was I just knew how to do this stuff because I had seen it. Well, why am I sharing all this? Well, I really want to get a picture, paint a picture as really a backdrop for the, 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 the passage we're looking at this morning of the idea of an apprenticeship. And uh, in our day, we've lost this to a great extent, although in some ways I experienced that with my own father, watching him build stuff. But in Jesus' day, it was much more predominant. In Jesus' day, the reality was that you were 99% uh, your future, if you're a child, if you were a son especially, and absolutely if you were a firstborn son, your vocation or your career was pretty much set for you at the day you were born by your father's vocation. And you would apprentice, you would grow up and you would apprentice under your father, and you would begin to, from very earliest ages, um, take on his skills and his craft. If he was a carpenter, you would learn carpentry. If he was a shoemaker, you would learn shoemaking. If he was a farmer, you would learn farming. And uh, we see that in the Bible. Jesus was a carpenter because his father was a carpenter. James and John were, fish, were fishermen because their father was a fisherman. And it's just the way it worked back in those days. And they, they learned this skill. They developed this career. Uh, it was passed on to them uh, as if it were in their blood. In fact, one of the things that's significant about the story of the um, prodigal son is that he really rejected that career, that path, that uh, taking on his father's business, if you will. And he wanted to sell out. He wanted to cash in his share. And he wanted to, to mark his own path. Well, it's important to see that as we look at the setting and the context of what, John explains, what Jesus explains about himself in John chapter 5. And to give some background, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, this chapter starts off with Jesus healing the man at the pool at Bethsaida, a man who had been crippled for 38 years, uh, trying to get in the pool to get healing, uh, was unable, and so Jesus came and picked him out of this crowd of sick people, chose him out, and said, uh, do you want to be healed? And he healed him. Um, the, the glitch and really the focus of the story is not so much that man's healing, but the fact that Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And uh, the, the Jewish uh, leaders, the, the religious officials, um, notice right away that Jesus has been healing on the Sabbath, and they accuse Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker. So Jesus defends himself with this defense. He says... I work on the Sabbath because my Father works on the Sabbath. In other words, God works all the time and therefore I must work all the time. And in essence, his defense is, I have to work on the Sabbath because I'm God. Okay, to put this in perspective, you know, if we know Jesus was God and that makes sense to us, but if you were hearing it, it would sound something like this. Uh, imagine a guy is uh, out on the road throwing hard-boiled eggs at people. And the police officer walks up to the man and he says, Excuse me, sir, um, 
what are you doing? Why are you throwing these eggs at people? And for his defense, he says, well, I'm throwing these eggs at people because I'm the Easter Bunny. Okay, now you would think, that's a bad defense. Because it may explain you're throwing Easter eggs, but it makes you crazy. And I'm going to have to arrest you, not for throwing Easter eggs, but for being a lunatic, right? Well, that's kind of what Jesus did here. He said, no problem about breaking the Sabbath. I have a, a right to break it the Sabbath because I'm God, okay? And this raises up a whole bigger accusation that the Pharisees make, the, the religious leaders. That actually doesn't say Pharisees, the religious rulers, leaders. And they say to him, they accuse him of two things now, breaking the Sabbath and making himself equal with God because he called God his father. Uh, it's interesting that they, they, they state that specifically. He was equal with God because he called God his father. Um, I appreciate that, you know, uh, it's cool how the Holy Spirit really orchestrates and manages things. Uh, I didn't tell Stefan what I was preaching, but it's cool that he picked that first song we sang, Our Father in Heaven. Uh, because a lot of what is true about God is that God is Father. And uh, it is significant that that is how Jesus predominantly uh, identified himself with God. Not as creator, not as the supreme being of the universe, but as Father. And it was a relationship that was unique, that uh, children of Israel would have called themselves children of God, but they wouldn't have uh, called God their Father in the way that Jesus did. And it really elevated, in their minds, Jesus to an equal status and position with God. And that was a problem for them. Uh, and it really should be, a, if, we were, if we were Jews in Jesus' day, it should be a problem for us as well. And uh, one of the great creeds of Judaism, one of the foundations of their faith, was that God the Lord was one. Uh, and that was a, a core foundation of what they believed, that God was one God. There was one supreme God over the universe, not multiple gods. Uh, and in fact, throughout Israel's history, they fell away from that by worshiping other gods, and it cost them dearly. They worship these false gods at great price. And so, when we come to the time of Jesus, the Sabbath was very important, and the, this idea of the oneness and supremeness of God was extremely important. And they guarded it. And they recognized that for any other being to be claiming divinity, to be claiming to be God, was a problem. And so here's Jesus coming on the scene saying, I have power over the Sabbath because I'm God. And I am equal with God, and I have equal rights and authority with God. Well, that raised all kinds of questions and red flags for the Jews. And it should, it, it would for you as well if you lived in Jesus' day. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, I've heard people ask this question, and maybe you've asked this question. I think, you know, in our modern world, people are confused. And I think some people actually believe, or kind of hold on to this notion, that up in heaven, there's like a, a city of gods roaming around. And like our God, Jehovah, is, is one of these divine beings. And a lot of people argue and would say, why can't there be lots of gods? Why can't there be a whole you know, universe full of gods all making you know, their little hobbies, creating worlds and universes? Of course, the teaching of Mormonism is that you can elevate yourself to the position where you can be God and you can create your own worlds and universes. It sounds good and logical, uh, but it can't be true. Okay? It cannot be true. And the reason is this. By very definition of the word, when we say, when we use the word God, 
What we mean by it, or what I mean by it anyway, what I believe the Bible means by it, is that it is the being above every being. It is the most high. The word holy has the idea of something that is set apart, unique and original, unmatched and unparalleled. And throughout Scripture, it defines God in these terms. He is the Most High. He is the Almighty. In other words, He's the one who possesses all might and power. He is all-wise. In other words, He possesses all wisdom and knowledge. Uh, He is sovereign. His sovereignty means that He can control all things by His own will. Now, here's the problem. Even if there's just two gods, they both can't be the top. Only one can be like the main boss, the head dude, the big guy, the big kahuna. Okay? Uh, they can't be equal. One has to be the greatest. One has to be the one whose will uh, has, has control, has predominance over the other. So there's, there can be no such thing as two divine beings. Okay? By nature of the word, uh, to be divine, to be supreme, means that you are unequal. And so, uh, it was an important doctrine of, of Judaism, and it's an important doctrine of Christianity, that we believe and hold firmly to this notion that God is supreme, and His will is sovereign over everything. And so, if God makes a decision, He doesn't have to check it out with the other God to say, you know, is this okay if I, like, do this? Uh, because His will is all there is. It is supreme. Uh, it is over everything. Well, Jesus comes on the scene and he claims equality with God. And so for the Jews, this was, this was a problem. Uh, it, it created numerous theological issues for them. And in their thinking, they're wrestling with this, going, you know, this is impossible. You can't be God equal with the Father. There can only be one God. Um, and in fact, for us, one of the, for me, one of the most difficult things really to, to explain, to understand, to wrap my small five brain cells around is the idea of the Trinity. How can God be one in three? Well, Jesus really uh, understands this dilemma for the, the religious leaders, for the Jews, for us. And in this passage, he really unfolds what it means for God to be one God uh, distinct in, in two or three distinct persons. Here, we haven't got to the Holy Spirit yet. The Holy Spirit comes later on in the Gospel of John. But he starts with this divided, divided uh, existence of Father and Son. So let's pick it up there and um, see what Jesus says about uh, his relationship with God uh, as equal with him, but as a distinct person. And uh, it's cast in the light of the father-son relationship. And so in verse 19, uh, Jesus says this. And, and remember, he's answering this question. How can, how can I be equal with God? How is that possible? He says, I assure you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son, and the Son um, loves the Son and tells him everything he is doing, and the Son will do far greater things than healing this man. You will be astonished at what he does. He will even raise from the dead anyone he wants to, just as the Father does. And the Father leaves all judgment to His Son, so that everyone will honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. But if you refuse to honor the Son, then you are certainly not honoring the Father who sent Him. Uh, First of all, 
you know, the Jews pictured, when Jesus said that he was equal with God, the Jews really had this idea that Jesus was setting himself up as another or separate God. Uh, and they couldn't conceive of a category where somebody would be equal with God and at the same time be God. And in fact, when we look back at John chapter 1, the wording there is really confusing. In the beginning, the word was, was God and the word was with God. We talked about the, con- the confusion of that. And if I say, I am Tim and I am with Tim, you lock me up, okay? Because uh, we don't use that kind of language. And it's a category we don't possess. Uh, but for God, it does exist that he is, Jesus could be God and could be with God. And it's significant and important that this is framed in the context of a father-son relationship. Um, Jesus carried out, and he frames us all as one who is carrying out his father's business. And that's the context, the setting of this whole thing. And if we think back to this idea of apprenticeship and look at what they would have understood a father-son to be in this apprenticing relationship. Um, First of all, the father and the son are made of the same stuff. Uh, We understand that a little bit in our modern scientific age because we understand the principle of genetics. We know that uh, roughly half of us is our dad and another half of us is our mom. And I realize that the genes can kind of battle each other out and sometimes it's not 50-50. But the point is, you know, when you say, boy, she has, that, that child has her mother's eyes, there's a sense in which she really does have her mother's eyes. The DNA genetic code that, that makes blue eyes blue from a, a mom who has blue eyes, it really is, in a sense, mom's eyes. Uh, I was blessed to receive my father's nose. I'm so thankful for that, his large, big nose. Uh, I would really trade it for a different nose, but uh, I could say I have my father's nose. Yeah. Um, there's a sense in which uh, we can say that. Now, for God, of course, this, you know, I realize this analogy would break down at some point, but uh, it helps us see that Jesus comes from God in the sense that they're made of the same substance and stuff. Uh, unlike us, God did not create Jesus. Uh, Jesus is his son, not because at some point in time he, he, God decided to have a son and he invented Jesus. It doesn't work that way. It's clear that Jesus was eternally the son. From as far back in eternity as you can go, the Father and Son existed. But they existed made of the same stuff, made of the same substance, the same stuff that makes God up, that he is all-wise, all-powerful, that he is holy, just, and good, that he is all-loving. That substance, that matter, whatever it is, that makes God what he is, also makes Jesus who he is. And they, uh, they share that same substance together. You could say that Jesus is 100% pure God, And then in his deepest character and nature, he is of the same substance and essence of whatever it is God is. Now, I don't know what that substance is, but it is what God is. You could call it light. You could call it holiness. Jesus and the Father absolutely share that same connection. But it's also true that they exist in this essence, this substance, as two distinct persons. And they take on persons, one as a father and the other as a son. Uh, It's significant that God has always been father. Uh, God didn't become a father when he created us. He didn't become a father at some point in eternity past when he decided to have a son and call him Jesus. For all eternity, forever, God the Father has been father. And God the Son has been son. 
And they had been in that relationship together. And so when Jesus came to this earth, incarnate as God, uh, taking on human flesh, walking about on the earth, his relationship to the Father didn't change. He still was here as God's Son. And uh, he uses that title often of himself uh, throughout the Gospels. And in this passage, he gives us an idea of what that, the significance of that is. He says, I assure you, truly, truly, the, the good old King James, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say to you, the truth is, he says, that the Son is unable to do anything of his own initiative. Uh, literally. The Son is unable to do anything of himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does. Everything that the Father does. The Son does. Um, the picture here really in this setting of, a, of this era is a father who's apprenticing a son. Uh, the son watches the father work and he takes on and he does the father's work. If the father's a carpenter building tables, the son watches, the son sees, this is the job, this is the work of the father, building furniture. And he models and copies and he does what the father does. And not only does he, does he do what the father does, but he does it in the same way and with the same purpose and the same approach that the Father does. He does that because he knows that his job is to someday take over the Father's business, uh, as Jesus actually did for his Father, his earthly Father. And that's the picture here. Jesus says, it's crazy for a son to go up and just do his own thing. Now, we kind of miss that because in our day and age, that's what, that's what sons do. I mean, we, we kick our kids out say, go away, go like, get your own life. Okay, make your own job and then support me. Okay, that's how it works. <clears throat> Remember that. Okay, go get a job, make lots of money, support your parents. <clears throat> okay, uh, but in Jesus, they didn't work that way. They didn't conceive it that way. In fact, as I said, that's one of the things that makes the story of the prodigal son so shocking. That this son would not take up his father's business. That he would not become a part of his father's company and his father's activity and business. And for the prodigal son to leave and to pursue his own career, such as his career was, was really to disown himself as a son, to disavow his sonship, to dissolve his place and status as a child. Uh, That's what makes that story so shocking, Uh, much more so in that day than in ours. So Jesus is saying, look, a son, that's what a son does. A son does what the father does. And as God's holy and perfect Son, uh, I live and exist equal with Him, but fully submitted and obedient to the Father's will, plan, purpose, and work. He says, I can't be about anything else but what God the Father is doing. And so for me as His Son, whatever I do is the hand of God at work. Uh, Whatever I do, it is God at work because I am watching the Father work and I am coming along under his, under really submitting under his hand, and I work where the Father works. I do what the Father does. I am about the work that God the Father is about. Uh, so first principle that Jesus lays down that's very important is that he is equal with God, but he is subservient to God. As a son is subservient, is under the will and authority of his Father, Jesus, while equal with the Father, is subservient and under the authority and will of his Father. And his Father decrees what the, what the work will be. His Father decrees what his purpose is in the world, 
And Jesus is about that activity and that business. Um, he is, in every sense, a, a divine apprentice, uh, only much more so because he uh, doesn't need to be taught like we would. But he is very much about what God the Father is doing. Um, he goes on and he, he kind of, that's one side of it, the sun side. The sun side is to watch and to observe what the Father's doing and to obediently pursue that work. What's the Father's job? Well, he says in the next verse, verse 20, he says, The Father loves the Son and tells him everything he's doing, and the Son will do far, to great, far greater things than these, and you will be astonished at what you see. Uh, the Father's job is, and, and again, putting this in human terms, as earthly fathers, you know, we really do want to teach our children. Uh, if our sons or our daughters are to take on our business, it's different with our child than with an employee. You know, if you hire somebody, you teach them the skills and you teach them the trade because you want to really profit from their labor. But it's not that way with a child, is it? We invest in our children because we love them, because we care deeply about them, and we want them to be blessed and have their life be filled. Uh, it's interesting, the word that's used here, you, you would expect you know, God's love to always be agape, agape love because it seems like the highest and most perfect. But interestingly here, he uses the word phileo, uh, which is family love. We, we translate it often brotherly love, but really it's the love of families. It's the kind of love that a father has for a child, or a child has for a, a parent, or his siblings have for each other. It's family love. And he says, the father loves the son. He cares deeply about everything in the son's life. And so because of that, he, out of this gracious, generous love, shows the Son all that he's about, reveals to him his plan and his program in the world, in the universe, so that the Father can participate and join in that. And so God is revealing, showing the Son out of love all that he's doing, and the Son is taking that up as his own work, and he's doing it actively, moment by moment. Um, what exactly is God's work? What is it that God is doing? Well, he says this. He says, um, verse 21, For even as uh, God can raise people from the dead, in the same way the Son also can bring people to life as he wills. And, furthermore, the Father leaves all judgment to his Son, so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Uh, to you know, Jesus kind of skips by all the, the, the menial stuff. You know, he goes really to the very biggest and, and broadest picture of God's work in the world. What is God's work in the world? Well, ultimately, it's either giving life or bringing judgment. Okay, when it comes down to the very end of it, what God thinks about you and I has eternal consequences. His ultimate work is either to give us life and give us life eternally or to condemn us to judgment. And, and Jesus cuts, you know, he's not messing around with the Pharisees here. He's not talking about watering flowers or, you know, uh, he's going to like the big issues. And he says, look, God the Father gives life. Uh, he gives life physically. He gives life spiritually. Uh, he can call from the dead anyone he wants to and give them life. I do the same work. I speak my word and I call to those who are dead. And here he's speaking really of spiritual death. Later he talks about physical death. He says, I speak to whom I will. 
I speak to those spiritually dead, and when I speak to them, if they respond, I can give them life. Or, he also says that the Father has given me authority. He's really given the Son the responsibility of bringing judgment. And the idea of judgment here is not that Jesus brings everybody into court case and decides who's innocent and guilty. The idea is if you come to judgment, you're already guilty. Okay? The trial's already been done. And either you have life and you're exempted from the trial because you have been, through Christ, acquitted. Or you come to judgment. And in judgment, it's not a matter of are you guilty or not guilty. It's a matter of how severe your punishment is. It's a matter of, yeah, you are guilty and you are being sentenced to judgment. And it says that God has given that authority, that, jo- that role, specifically to Jesus. Why is that? Well, I don't know, actually, <laughs> fully. But one reason is that it is all about how people respond to Jesus' command. Uh, the deal is this. Jesus speaks his word to people, and they either receive it and believe it and accept it, and they have life, or they reject his word and they find themselves in judgment. So it is natural that Jesus would be the ultimate judge because he will know how each person has responded to him personally. Um, in fact, uh, Jesus goes on to say this, I, I assure you, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from life to death. Um, Jesus is speaking his word to the spiritually dead. And those who listen and receive it come to life. And those who reject it uh, find themselves already condemned and under God's judgment. Uh, finally, so, so Jesus is equal in substance with the Father, though subservient. He is equal in power and ability with the Father as one who gives life and who brings judgment. And thirdly, uh, he is equal with God in honor. Uh, Jesus says that God has done this. He shared his work with the Son. He's given him this, this job of judging and of giving life for this purpose, so that everyone will honor the Son in the same way that they honor the Father. And if you refuse to honor the Son, then you are certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. Uh, lastly, Jesus and, and the Father, God the Son, God the Father, share equal honor. And as it says in Philippians, one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Uh, And in fact, throughout the Gospel of John, John and Jesus make it very clear that the honor of the Son is very directly tied to honoring the Father. And because many of the Jewish leaders were rejecting and dishonoring the Son, Jesus argues that they are therefore dishonoring and rejecting God the Father. They think they worship God the Father, but in reality, when they dishonor the Son, they dishonor the Father. Their honor is connected. And so when we worship God, we worship God the Father, we worship God the Son, don't we? We sing praises to Jesus, we honor Him. And in honoring Jesus, we honor God the Father. Their their worship is co-equal. They each deserve uh, equal worship and praise and honor from us. Uh, so the bottom line is what Jesus is saying here is I am God I as a son uh, come from him I flow out from him as one 
in substance and being with him. Uh, we are about the same business. We are about the same work. We are about the same purpose. Uh, we are about the same mission in the world of giving life to those who will receive it and bringing judgment to those who don't. And in the end, together, God the Father and God the Son will, will receive equal worship and honor for all eternity. Uh, and, and in that, God, Jesus really describes what it means for him to be God, uh, one God, existing in two persons. Um, but what does that mean for us? It's a great doctrine, great truth. Um, it, it substantiates all that Jesus is, and uh, it, it is what gives him authority to save us. It was interesting, as I was preparing this message on Friday, I had these two people delivering wonderful literature from the Watchtower come to my office. And uh, I, I really didn't have time to tell them everything I thought, so I just was very polite. But interesting that here are these people claiming Jesus, but not Jesus as one who is co-equal in every way with the Father, uh, who call themselves Christians, but who don't identify Jesus as equal in substance and being with the Father. It is an important issue. And I really believe that they are falling and stand condemned before God as every other person who rejects Jesus as God, as Lord and as Savior. So it is an important truth. But how do we boil it down into our own life? How do we boil this down into our own day-to-day living? Um, well, first of all, or the, kind of the main umbrella of these points, is that we are the Father's business. When Jesus talks about this work that he's doing, this work of God, it's interesting that the focus of that work is human beings living on planet Earth. He doesn't talk about dogs and cats. He doesn't talk about how he's trying to prevent, you know, save the world from global warming or nuclear war or political corruption or social injustice. The bottom line, he says, the work that I'm about, not that those things are bad, okay, you know, I, I, I'm really not for global warming either, um, but that's not what Jesus focused on. He says the work that God is about predominantly, preeminently, is giving life to people, to us, to you and I. That is God's work. We are God's focus in his mission. And it is what Jesus was all about. And let's look at a couple areas uh, relating to his business, his work with us. First of all, um, Jesus makes it very clear that we have, we have a responsibility, we have a part in this, to respond to his voice. He says, I'll read it again, I've read it, but let me read it again. He says, I assure you, those who, who listen to my voice, those who listen to my word, literally, and believe it, uh, believe in God who sent me, have eternal life. Um, those who listen, those who hear his voice. Uh, one implication of that is that, that God, that Jesus, is actively speaking his word. Okay? Jesus, uh, through all time to this moment, is speaking to us. That doesn't mean he's speaking audibly. It doesn't mean if we're not hearing his voice, it's because we need to turn up our hearing aid. Uh, he speaks to our heart. He speaks heart language. He's spirit. He speaks in our spirit. He speaks to us, and I believe he's speaking to every person. Uh, uh, he is revealing himself through scripture, through teaching, 
through evangelists, through the testimony of believers, he is speaking to people. Uh, And we have a response to uh, listen, he says, to listen to that voice. And this word really has the idea of not only just hearing it, but listening and doing something with it, obeying it, responding to it, following it. Um, Faith is much more than just believing in a truth. It is doing something about that truth. Uh, It's taking it upon ourselves and practicing it. Uh, He says we must believe it, we must listen, we must believe. We must believe in the one who sent him. We must believe that God the Father sent Jesus as his son to die for us. Uh, We must respond in faith. Uh, That is our part, to look, to listen, to hear his voice, and to respond in faith. those who have full confidence that God is speaking to them through Jesus Christ and put their full confidence of faith in what he is speaking, that he offers to us life. He offers to us eternal life. Um, when, he, when we do that, when we respond to his voice, he promises us some great things. Uh, and, and really, if we have put our faith and hope in Christ, the good news is that we can live now with a new kind of hope and peace. Um, Living life with hope and peace is a good thing. It's better than living life with chocolate. Hard to believe, I know. But even even better than coffee is a life lived with hope and peace. And that's what Jesus promises us uh, as we respond to him in faith. Uh, the reality is that no one should have a more positive outlook on life than us as Christians. Why? Well, first of all, uh, because he says that we have, uh, he has spoken to us in our dead condition. Let me read on. And I assure you that the time is coming, in fact it's here, when the dead will hear my voice. There again, it's Jesus speaking. He's speaking here about the spiritually dead the voice of the Son of God. And those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself um, and has granted his Son to also have life in himself. I didn't talk about this, but another key issue of God's oneness with the Father is that they both are self-existent. They both have within themselves life-sustaining power. And out of that life-sustaining power, he says that Jesus will give to us life. He's given him authority to judge all mankind because he is the Son of Man. Um, We have life. In fact, he says that we have passed from death into life. Um, The good news is that if we have received Christ, we will will never die. Okay, now you go, well, I have a problem with that because I've seen Christians die. Well, it's true, our bodies die. Okay, I'll grant you that. But we never die. Because it says we have already passed tense. We have already passed from death into life. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, you are alive eternally. It's not something you have to look forward to in the future. It's something you possess now and today. I have a good friend, um, a counselor friend, who when people would come and they would give him all of their problems and tell him everything that was wrong and how hopeless life was and how bad things were, he would always say, well, tell me, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's the absolute worst thing that could happen to you? And most people would say, well, I could die. 
Well, for Christians, the good news is we can't even do that. That thing's already been checked off our list. The worst thing that could happen to us can no longer happen to us. We can't die. Our bodies can run out of uh, juice and need, you know, recharging, but we will never die. We will live. We will pass from this world one day and we will step out of this world into another world, but we will never die. So the worst possible thing that could ever happen to us can't happen to us. So that makes everything else much better. Okay, if you don't have to worry about death, you know, stuff like taxes and, like, you know, leukemia are no big deal, okay? Uh, Because death can't touch us. What is the worst thing that could happen to you? Well, I don't know. Uh, Not death. And it makes everything else much more livable. Because the greatest fear of mankind is no longer something we face. Now, of course, Satan tries to deceive us. And Satan constantly will try to bring that fear of death back into our life and plague us that, you know, you better be worried because bad things are going to happen to you and you could, you could die. You just got to tell Satan, hey, Satan, you know, take a hike. I have passed from death into life. I live eternal. And my life you can never take. I belong to God and I am His and I am alive. Are you alive? Okay, some of you are. Okay, the rest of you, you've got to listen to Jesus' voice, okay? He's talking to you. Um, it gives us a great sense of hope. hope. Hopelessness, being hopeless, is the sense that there is no way out. That we are stuck in a situation to which there is no solution. But Jesus says the reality is you, you, you could never be truly hopeless because you are already out. It's not that there's no way out, it's that you are already out and there's no way back in. There's no way back into death and discouragement. Okay? We have an amazing hope that we ought to walk and live in. Uh, again, not that Satan won't try to rob us of that hope, but it's Satan taking it. It's not, it's not God. God's plan, but God, the work that God wants to do for us is to give us hope. Um, second great thing this means with hope and peace, we have, we have hope, but we have also peace. He says, um, he says, I assure you, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be, get this, they will never be condemned for their sins. Now you live with this amazing hope that we'll never die, but we live with the amazing peace of knowing that we are guilt-free. Now, how many of you have something to be guilty about? You don't have to raise your hand. Okay, because I know the answer already. You are all guilty of something. Okay? We are all guilty of a lot. And uh, Satan loves to remind us of that. Sometimes our spouse may remind us of it as well. Certainly, I know for me, I remind myself of it often. But the truth is that because of the work Jesus has done as God's Son, he says... You, have, you are no longer, no longer condemned for any of your sins. None. We are absolutely guilt-free. So you say, well, you know, a lot of times I still feel very guilty. And sometimes we do. Where does that guilt come from? Well, it does not come from God. Okay? He says, we, we no longer are condemned for sin. Well, you say, well, what if I woke up this morning and I, I, I sinned, I knew it was wrong, I knew it was a sin, and I did it anyway and I feel guilty. Well, it is good to feel sorrow. 
It is good to feel sorry when we, when we fail God our Father. It is good to, to feel sorrow when we know that we have hurt others because of our sin. But sorrow is different than guilt. Guilt means I am guilty of wrong, I should be condemned, and I am deserving of punishment and death. I am deserving of beating myself up. I am deserving of bad things. Jesus says, through my work, for those who hear my voice and respond, they, there is no condemnation for any of their sins. What that means is, there is no punishment for anything you have ever done wrong. Okay, whatever you did this morning that was stupid and lame and really, you know, you should feel bad about, there's no punishment for it. Uh, you do not need to beat yourself up for it. God took that beating already. Jesus took that beating. And for you to beat yourself up is to deny His grace. is to undercut the punishment He already took for it. Uh, Satan loves, or at least in my life, Satan loves this strategy. Satan loves to bring the voice of condemnation. You're so bad. You're such a mess up. You're such a failure. You know, why, what do you do? why are you a pastor? Why are you even a Christian? Okay. Know that that voice is Satan. And tell it to go away. Okay. Now, there is a place for godly sorrow. There is a place when we make mistakes to say, God, I'm sorry. I know that was wrong and that hurt you. It hurt other people. It hurt me. And I confess that as a sin. And I am sorrowful. But don't ever let punishment be a part of that. Okay? Don't ever condemn yourself and punish yourself and beat yourself up or let others beat you up for sin. Jesus says, there is no condemnation for any of our sins. And the result is that instead of living under guilt and condemnation, we have to be people who live with amazing peace. Just amazing, amazing peace. This amazing sense that not only, not only can I not die, but I can't even get in trouble. Now, talk about what's the worst thing that can happen to you. You know, the two worst things would be to die or get in trouble. And we can't do either. Man, we got it made. Got it made. Uh, some people say, you know, you can't teach this stuff. Because if you teach this stuff, people just go out and just sin like crazy. Well, if you're a Christian and you're a believer, you know, I dare you to try it. Okay, it's miserable. All right? Uh, we can't just sin carelessly. Because we may not feel guilty, but uh, we will feel miserable. And uh, we'll see in a minute why, uh, why what God offers us is so much more and better. Okay? It's an empty, shallow pursuit that ends in nothingness. Um, we can't be condemned. We pass from death to life. Um, you know, we have a lot to celebrate. Uh, I've talked and met with people who have recovered from serious heart uh, heart diseases were heart attacks where they almost died or people who had cancer and they'd been given the diagnosis you know 60 days and you're checking out they were amazingly healed and cured and those people approach life with an amazing enthusiasm and joy that they've kind of gotten a second chance that they have life we should all be that way because the reality is we were all dead not dying we were dead. He says, Jesus spoke to those who are dead. That was you and I. Before Christ, we were dead. And Jesus spoke to us and he made us alive. We got stuff to be happy about. Okay? Too many Christians go around looking like they're still dead. And they're sad and they're, you know, like they're at a funeral. We have to be people filled with God's joy because we have life. Life in him. 
Not life like the world lives life, but life from the very source of life itself. I love that. He says, God has life in himself. And he has given that the Son would also have life in himself. To have Jesus is to have that infinite, unending source of life springing up in us. He told the woman at the well, this, this, this well gushing up within us unto eternal life. Uh, he also says, in terms of our, our hope and our peace, the last reason for hope and peace, he says, um, don't be so surprised at what I'm saying. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead, and here he's speaking about physically dead, and the reason we know that is because he says the dead who are in their graves, okay, so this is talking about really, like really dead people, will hear the voice of God's Son, and, they, and he will call them forth. He will call them out of the grave. Those who have done good will be resurrected to eternal life. And those who have continued in evil, who have practiced evil, will be resurrected to judgment. Um, last, last word of hope is that even though our bodies do die one day, there is a day coming when Jesus will speak to every, every coffin, every tomb, every body buried in the ground, burned, destroyed, and he will call it to come forth. And every person, wicked and good, uh, Christian and non-Christian, will be raised and will stand before God. One group uh, will be raised to eternal life, another group to judgment and to destruction. Um, And that's what Jesus says. Uh, So if we are in Christ, there's hope. There's hope. That it's, for us, the future is all good. It's all good. Uh, no matter who becomes Prime Minister of Thailand, it's all good. No matter who becomes President of the United States, it's still all good. Okay, no matter what, it's good because Jesus uh, is in control. Um, a couple other, couple other implications of this passage. We live with great hope and peace. I really believe that it also tells us, teaches us, shows us that we ought to be people who are consumed with God's purposes. Uh, It just is astonishing to me that Jesus, who was equal with God, who had all power and authority, who had life within himself, would say these words. Who would say, I can't do anything. I'm not able to do anything by myself. I can only do what I see the Father doing. I think, man, if Jesus had to say that, if Jesus was in that place where he could not operate independently of his Father, what does that say about you and I? About where life should be for us? The reality is we can live independently of God. We can do our own thing. And all too often we do. But it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, Jesus said, there is no greater thing. That's what being a son is. Being a son is being consumed with the business of my Father. In John chapter 1, Jesus says that if we believe in him, we have been given the right, the authority, the privilege of being called the children of God. We are his sons and his daughters. As Jesus was consumed with God's work, there is no greater purpose in life than to Be like Jesus, consumed with God's work. Well, how do you know what God's work is? Well, the cool thing is God loves you and I 
just like He loved Jesus. And as a loving Father, He is eager to show us the business He is about. He wants to reveal to you His work in the world and how you are a part of it. And the amazing thing is, as an apprentice is to a father, so we are to this father called into his service, uh, young or old, to do and be about his work, to be proclaiming Christ, to be his witness, to be his servants, to be a part of the work that he's doing. Now, we don't do it the same like Jesus did. Okay, Jesus said, there's nothing the Father does that I can't do, including raising people from the dead. Okay, we may have to draw some lines. There may be some limits that God is not going to cause. We don't have that same infinite power. We have the Holy Spirit, and what God calls us to do, He will empower us. Uh, we're not God, and there are, are limits. But God calls us and, and gifts us to be about His work, to be a part of what He's doing. And so we must be very careful that we get that order correct, that it's God who is working. We simply need to follow and go where he's working. Versus the way we oftentimes do it. We come up with all our great and grand plans of what we're going to do, and we ask God to come bless us. Okay? It doesn't work that way. Jesus says, I, I as, as one who is equal with God, must be totally submitted to his will. I must see where God is working, and I must go and follow and be a part of what God is doing. He invites us to the same thing. And he will reveal to us what he's doing if we will take the time to look. Lastly, uh, we, as Jesus knew, we must come to know the Father's love. Jesus could say about himself, the Father loves the Son and reveals all things to him. Uh, The truth is, you cannot be effective, you can't really come to fully possess all that God has for us if you don't understand this principle that we are God's children, He is our Father, and He loves us perfectly. Now for most of us, well for all of us, we've had fathers who were less than perfect, because we're all human. Um, We need to realign what Father is in line with God's Father love for His Son. And realize that, that what God the Father had for God the Son, Jesus, is the exact kind and nature and type of love that He has for us. Uh, God is our Father. I just love this picture that, you know, God, before He was anything, through all eternity, before He was creator, before He was sustainer of anything, He was Father. And He was in this amazing relationship with His Son. And what God has done in the world, the great work that God has done in the world, is to bring us into that kind of relationship with Him not just as people, not just as trophies or some prize, but he makes us his children. And he calls us to know his love, his father's love, his agape love, but also his phileo love, his love as, as a parent for a child. Um, do you know that love in your own life? It's vital and it's important because we can't give that kind of love until we've received it. Uh, the more we experience God's love in our own life, the more we're able to give that kind of love to others and be a light for Him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank You so much that You are indeed Father. 
that you love us, that your great work in the world has been us. Uh, Sinful, dead, corrupt, wicked beings who have rebelled against you, and yet you loved us and wanted to make us your children, to restore and redeem us and renew us by your blood and your grace. Father, I thank you that you have been, for all eternity, one God existing as Father and Son. And Father, I pray that we would come to grasp and understand what that means. Uh, it's not just an image or a picture for us. It is, it is the very essence of what you are. A Father who loves his child. And you have invited us to be partakers of that love. Father, help us to be good children who are obedient, who know your love, who believe in you. Lord God, fill us with your hope and your peace. Thank you for forgiving us of sin. Thank you that we are no longer under the fear of punishment and condemnation. Lord, help us to be people filled with your joy because we are people who are eternally alive in Christ. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.